When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, March 13th. On today's show, I want to recap what was a compelling Sunday of third round singles action at Indian Wells. So many of the top seeds in both the men's and women's singles draws managing to survive and advance on the day. In fact, only three higher seeds were knocked out on Sunday and on today's podcast. I want to discuss how so many of the top players in the world managed to advance to the second week at Indian Wells. On the women's side, I want to focus in particular on Maria Sakari. I think it's time for us to have a little bit of a Sakari conversation. Of course, she has had a compelling Indian Wells thus far, three-set win over Shelby Rogers in her first match. Now, yesterday, she earns another come-from-behind three-set victory, this time over 27th-seeded Annalena Kalanina. I have very rarely seen a player be as emotional as Sakari was after advancing to the round of 16 following her victory over Kalanina. You could see how much this victory meant to her. And I think it's because Sakari is at an inflection point in her career. Again, you look for Maria Sakari. She's been a staple of the top 12 now for two, two and a half years. And that's a really impressive run. You know, the sort of prime every player aspires to in professional tennis. And yet, where does Maria Sakari go from here? That's the question I want to examine on today's podcast. I also want to talk about how she did manage to advance past Kalanina, of course. Speaking of two three-setters to get to the round of 16, how about Jessica Pagula? Tested once again. This time she advances once again as well. A three-set victory over the rising former number one junior in the world, Anastasia Potapova. Want to break down that match. Talk about what Potapova did so well in the first few sets that unfortunately she just wasn't quite able to sustain down the home stretch of the third, but I don't know how much is left to have of the Pagula conversation. We know how good she is at so many different things on a tennis court, and yet I want to talk about the tactics I suppose she employed specifically in that Potapova match. It speaks to the wealth of tricks she possesses with her skill set. Again, that was probably the most compelling women's match on the day, although we had seven matches played out, Sabalenka advancing via withdrawal, five of the seven matches on the women's side yesterday going three sets. So yeah, it was a really good round three, uh, first half of round three on Sunday, excuse me, on the women's side at Indian Wells. On the men's side, I mean, we had so many upsets in the bottom half of the draw on day number three of this event, right, with Tsitsipas going out, Dimitrov going out, all sorts of seeds on the bottom half of the draw, Berrettini, Shapovalov all getting knocked out. Stability was inevitable uh, on the bottom half, in the bottom half, excuse me, of this men's singles draw, and yet, you know, all the top seeds got tested, right? Daniil Medvedev pushed 
to three sets. He had won, I think, something like 18 consecutive sets going into his second set against Ivashka. But Ivashka ups his aggression. You saw some frustration with Medvedev with the court conditions at Indian Wells. We can get into all of that here on today's show. A testy win for Alex Zverev, who is quietly improving with every passing match. He gets through the Emil Rusevori test in three sets. You had Nori push to three, you know, uh, obviously an upset on the day on the men's side that we're going to get into. Kasper Root knocked out by Christian Garin. Plenty of fun battles from day three on the men's side as well. So we've got a jam-packed podcast for all of you listeners today as we begin to set the scene for week number two at Indian Wells. I do want to make a promise to all of you listeners as we are only halfway through the third round I wanted to save a special guest for the halfway mark of this event I always figure that halfway mark comes before the round of 16 so we will have a guest on tomorrow's podcast to help me set the scene for the round of 16 moving forward recap you know the first week of Indian Wells action as well so be on the lookout for that mini break podcast tomorrow of course if you're looking for some of the other things happening across levels in the tennis world I would point all of you over to our great shot podcast feed of course every Monday Cracked Rackets contributors Damian Kust, Jakob Bobro break down all All the latest happenings on the ATP Challenger Tour on Wednesdays, Thursdays. We break down all of the action happening in the Division I college tennis world on both the men's and women's side. So if you're looking for an update on some of the other non-ATP WTA Tour level things happening in the tennis world, that Great Shot podcast is the place for you. Of course, be sure to check out the Cracked Interviews podcast, all of our content on both our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel as well as our website, CrackedRackets.com. We know it's our job to keep all of you tennis fans informed on everything happening across levels in the tennis world. We take that responsibility seriously. To get an update on everything, be sure to make crackrackets.com your homepage moving forward. Of course, a thank you to all of you listeners who do tune in day in, day out to this show. A massive thank you as well to our sponsors at Tennis Point. You all know the deal. For all of the latest and greatest equipment, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. I will say, I'm always told no one gets new pairs of shoes as frequently as they should for optimum athletic performance. I'll tell you what, there's very fun catalog of new shoes being offered by all the companies. Maybe you're a Nike guy. Maybe you're an Adidas woman. Maybe you like to rock the New Balances or the Asics. I'm telling you, Tennis Point has it all. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. Treat yourself to that tennis gift. You certainly deserve You know what else you deserve? A recap of day five at Indian Wells. So let's get into the action now. Let's start once again on the women's side of things. And let's start with that aforementioned conversation about seventh-seeded Maria Sakkari. Sakkari into the round of 16 once again, this time via a three-set victory over Angelina Kalanina. This match was extraordinarily physical, and all these matches on this slow, high-bouncing, gritty Indian Wells surface, I promise I'm going to try not to mention that on each and every podcast to you listeners. You're probably sick of hearing it, but all the matches will be inherently some degree more physical than they might be on a different surface. And yet, you know, again, watching Sakari go about winning this match, I think the thing that stood out to me the most 
is that that underlying physicality she brings to each and every match, I think that's what remains the most compelling aspect of Maria Sakari's game. And I've brought this stat up before on prior mini breaks. It's one of my favorite things to look for on Tennis Abstract. It's the fact that for Maria Sakari, who has now been competing in matches on the WTA Tour for eight consecutive seasons, her first serve win percentage has improved in each of her first seven. Now, right now in her eighth year, her first serve win percentage is below what she was at last year. I'm going to give her more time to get back on track because I'm certainly hoping that streak isn't snapped here this season. But, you know, it's the underlying physicality Maria Sakari brings is what got her into the top 50, right? That ability to, if all else fails, be prepared for the grind to make... 12 backhands consecutively cross court down the line, whatever the situation may call for to hit that high loopy forehand with depth to buy herself time when she's on the run down the line. She has that underlying skill set and how she's been able to work herself into the top 10 player she's become is by improving on the margins, turning that first serve from a shaky proposition into a top 10 weapon. You know, she's been top 10 in hold percentage uh, this past year and a half, and she's currently sitting at 10th right now amongst top 50 players on the WTA Tour. You bring together a weapon, a first serve, first forehand combination, which she has clearly improved upon. You watch her play. Her willingness to move forward has continued to improve as well over the course of these past few seasons. She has done everything she can to improve on the margins. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, again, from a break percentage perspective, Sakari 35.1 for her career right now. The average amongst top 50 players is 35.8%. So, you know, she's an average returner with a top 10 serve. That's typically how you find yourself in the top 15 of the WTA rankings. But the question I continue to ask myself is, what does Maria Sakari do at an elite level to disrupt elite caliber players on the WTA tour. She wants to elevate herself into that tier one conversation, right? Because that's the only step left for the 27-year-old Sakari to make. She's been ranked as high as number three in the world. She's made Grand Slam semifinals. Obviously, was two points away from winning the match, or maybe she even had that match point against Krejcikova, I forget, in what was their three-set semifinal at the French Open in 2021. You know, Sakari's been on the precipice of so many great results, and obviously the one number that's constantly held against her is her record in finals. You look for Maria Sakari in her career at the WTA Tour level. She's made seven total finals, right? That's really impressive. She's made an Indian Wells final, which obviously she did last year. It was covered extensively on the Netflix docuseries Breakpoint. You know, she's made a St. Petersburg final, obviously a French Open semifinal as well, multiple second weeks at slams. She doesn't have that signature run. She doesn't have that signature, you know, title victory right now on her mantle. What can she do to capture that? Does she have that within her? Or again, is she destined to be really good, but maybe not on the elite caliber of players like obviously a Sviantek or a Sabalenka or even a Rabakina who does have that elite weapon, that serve, which caught fire at Wimbledon and allowed her to capture the slam, caught fire again at the Australian Open, her ability to play front foot tennis, play on her term. She beats Ika, makes another Australian Open final. You know, it, does Sakari have some sort of weapon in her arsenal to go on that sort of run? Well, you know, again, the underlying physicality on this uh, has clearly thrived on this slow, gritty surface that is Indian Wells. 
But again, even against someone like Kalanina, who's really good, really good. Uh, I went on that rant yesterday or the day prior. I forget which mini break podcast it was. Kalanina, I think, is in a very similar mold to Maria Sakkari. She is an explosive athlete who is really solid all around, can hit the ball through the court, but, you know, obviously is more comfortable in a counter-punching role than naturally inherently inside the court and dictating with her first strike. Not that she's not capable of doing that. You know, what is the upside for that sort of player? It's, it's fascinating because growing up, those were the players that compelled me the most, the Kozlovs of the world, the Halops of the world, who could just Wozniakis grind their way through every court, the fight that they show, the tenacity they show, match in, match out. And yet the more you watch tennis, the more you realize you just have to have some sort of elite weapon to make your life easy if you want to succeed at elite levels. I mean, again, this is not a revelation to longtime Maria Sakkari viewers, supporters, does she possess that elite weapon? <sighs> the physicality is like half a weapon. The serve has continued to improve. But again, you saw Kalanina got clean looks at the return. She was able to extend rallies. Now, again, Sakari being more comfortable stepping inside the baseline, stepping up, hitting first forehands on the rise, a little bit more comfortable moving forward as well. That's ultimately how she's able to win this match. And, you know, again, you look for Maria Sakari. She did win 71% of her first serve points yesterday, fought off six of the nine break points that she faced. <sighs> But do you consider her an elite server, even though she's 10th in hold percentage? Do you consider her on the caliber of a Rabakina, of a Sabalenka, I would say, you know, a Garcia, Samsonova? Probably not. Do you consider her on the Sviantec tier, like who maybe doesn't have the eye-popping pop on the serve, but obviously follows it so efficiently with her first strike that – and her serve is very good, by the way. That's not meant to be a slight on Iga's serve, but it's just not as – pronounced in pace the way Rabakina and I, Sabalenka, I suppose, are. Um, I don't, like, when I look at Maria Sakkari. And that's why, again, like, does an elite player... I, uh, she's winning through struggles right now. It's very clear Sakkari is not playing her best. She's gotten off to such slow starts when her first forehand is spraying. And, you know, you look at her first serve percentage, she's been 56% in match number one, 52% in match number two. It's not great. And you could see those struggles, particularly in first set. So, you know, she's having to rely on that underlying physicality more so than anything else. And she's gotten away with it uh, against someone like Shelby Rogers, who couldn't match that physicality, against someone like Kalanina, who didn't have the elite weapon to capitalize on the tentativeness of Sakari early on. I mean, again... You look for Maria Sakari defending finals points here. Right now in the live ranking, Sakari's currently at ninth. And yet, you know, again, do you consider Maria Sakari tier two? Because she's definitely not tier one right now. She's not on the Ica caliber. She's not on the Sabalenka caliber. Is she still in that Jabur? I mean, I think Pagula's past her, right? Like, I, I think Krejcikova, you would say, has the higher ceiling. And maybe you draw a direct through line to that 2021 French Open semifinal. I mean, again, Maria Sakari's 37-23 over her last 52 weeks. You look for her, you know, she makes the tour finals in 2021. She makes the tour finals in 2022. To be a top eight player for two consecutive seasons, that's extraordinary. And she's been exactly that. And yet again, 27 years old, still just the one title. I wouldn't hold that against her because she does have so many high-level semifinals, quarterfinals in her career. And yet, you know, again, 
27 years old, maybe the ceiling is seal, uh, tier two. And that's a really good player. There's no shame in being a tier two caliber sort of person. But again, like, that's the problem is I think we've seen enough. It's just like, I think she's maximized the serve. Like, I, I just don't know how she's going to add any more pace to that shot. Yes, she continues to look for opportunities to be more aggressive with her forehand. But again, inherently hasn't, I, I just feel like we've reached the, ma- like, this is, I think, Maria Sakkari's ceiling. And that ceiling is number seven in the, like, you know, it's seven in the world right now. It's really freaking good. I, I am. It was just, again, it was the reaction to see how much that victory meant to her. You could see the internal struggles because I think Sakari realizes this as well. If, if I'm saying all of these things out loud and I know I'm meandering here, so I'll move on in a moment. But like to celebrate a three-set victory over Kalanina in the round of 32 after you have made a final at Indian Wells the year prior, I think it speaks to Sakari understanding the significance of this moment, seeing, you know, the field sort of shaping up around her. You know, David and Kane and I had that conversation of there's sort of a top seven, top eight solidifying right now on the WTA tour. And, you know, again, the players you would say right off the bat, Iga, Sabalenka, Pagula, Krejcikova, I think Goff has to be in that conversation. Obviously, Caroline Garcia's been really good at a bunch of events for a while now. You can list a bunch of names before you get to Maria Sakkari, and I think that's surprising, again, given she has been a consistent top eight player uh, over these past two seasons, and yet for some reason she's just not the standout name, and it's because she doesn't have that pronounced weapon, that pronounced aggression to always play on her terms. And yet, again, that underlying physicality, extraordinarily impressive in a three-set win over a Kalania who belongs in the top 35. Like, she is just that solid all the way around. Sneaky good pace, sneaky good mover, sneaky springy. I really enjoy the game of Kalanina. That was a really good win for Maria Sakri. But again, I'm curious what all of you think. Does Sakri still have tier one upside potential 27 years old? I mean, again, I'll defer to all of you mini break listeners. You can find us at Crack Rackets at A.L. Gruskin. That's enough, though, on that Maria Sakri conversation. It just it is fascinating because, again, the win percentage is sort of plateaued. She's just been the same player now for two and a half years, and you just wonder, is there another step to move forward towards? And, I mean, you look for Maria Sakkari. It's an interesting matchup. She's going to take on Carolina Pliskova. Pliskova providing your only formal definition of an upset on the day, the 17th-seeded Pliskova knocking out the 11th-seeded Kudermatova, 1-5. in five. Pliskova served extraordinarily well. I mean, she won 77% of her first serve points. Now, she only made them at a 59% clip, but she was going after her first strike because you can't let Kudermatova dictate from the center of a court. And on these slow, high-bouncing courts, she's going to have a little bit more time to get to the ball. You know, she's already a pretty explosive athlete who can hit with depth out of her corners, but you give Kudermatova that much more time, she's that much more dangerous. Pliskova took that time away. And look, neither of these players, Kudermatova nor Pliskova, given how flat they like to drive through the ball, uh, neither of them will prefer, I suppose, this surface to maybe some of the others. And yet for Carolina Pliskova, what she has to love about this surface is just how much more time she has to get to the ball. Because, I mean, again, when Pliskova has time, she's coming off of quarterfinals at the U.S. Open last year, quarterfinals at the Australian Open this year. She made quarterfinals in Dubai as well, beating Sakari, Von Drusova, and Kalanina, all very good wins before she was forced to withdraw due to illness against Sviantec. You know, you look for uh, 
Pliskova here in 2023. She's 15 and five overall, and her five losses, by the way, Ostapenko, Collins, Lynette at the Australian Open when she was the third best player in the world, uh, Rabakina in Abu Dhabi. Alexandrova in Doha, but she had to come through qualifying to get to that. So she had played three matches prior to that first round against Alexandrova. Quarterfinals Dubai, where she's forced to withdraw again against Sviantec. It's a pretty good start, 15-5 and five, to Karolina Pliskova's 2023 season. That's how she's gotten herself back into the top 20. Karolina Pliskova currently sitting at number 17 in the live rankings. It's interesting to note, you look for her career at Indian Wells again. How has she fared on this surface? Well, because she is who she is, she's made the semifinals here twice. She's made the quarterfinals four times. Hasn't made the quarterfinals since 2019. I mean, again, she's got the biggest weapon, right? Her her first serve on the court, she's serving better right now than Maria Sakari is. Sakri's playing tentative tennis, so Pliskova's going to have some time to hit through the court to have that opportunity to redirect the ball, to move, and which is very effective when you can redirect, play behind players on this surface to create space for yourself. That's a fascinating matchup because, again, on paper, it's one Maria Sakri's got to win, right? Like, just the, the totality of things Maria Sakri can do at this point of her career, the physicality she can bring is greater than that Carolina Pliskova serve. And, you know, again, as as big as Pliskova hits the ball, it's on this surface, it's a it's a surface that would say advantage Sakari. So that's a fascinating little inflection point there. And again, if Sakari gets through that, now she's into the quarterfinals. It's another 1,000-level quarterfinal for her, which, again, you want to make a third consecutive tour-ending finals, get to the quarterfinals at all the 1,000-level events. Ask Veronica Kudermatova, Jessica Pagula, what, Daria Kasakina, what that can do for your ranking. It's an interesting one. Pliskova, again, the formal episode on the day, 1-5 and five over Kuder Matova, who just came out of the gates too slow. And it was a really competitive second set, but again, Kuder Matova spotted Pliskova first set. Can't do that at this stage of an event. Uh, moving through the rest of the draw, again, five three-setters overall on the day. You know, three sets for Petra Kvitova, love six, six love, six four over Ostapenko. It looked exactly like you thought it looked. I mean, again, just so streaky. Ostapenko comes out of the gates ripping everything. Just anything she touched went two feet or a foot inside whatever line she was targeting. The pace, even on this surface, was overwhelming Petra Kvitova, who is not the best mover even in the prime of her career. But, you know, it's a little creakier for her changing directions, getting in and out of corners even now. Um, And Ostapenko just blitzed through her. Again, Ostapenko was lights out in set number one. And then she started spraying. And then Kvitova found some first strike magic. Kvitova found a few more first serves just to push Ostapenko back. And, you know, again, we got to a third set in about 45 minutes. Love six, six love. And then we played some real tennis. And, you know, again, Petra Kvitova's first serve was more reliable. I know that's very simplistic. But simply put, you look at the statistics from the match, I think it does tell the story. You know, again, neither of these players were particularly successful on serve. And yet, you know, again, when Petra Kvitova was able to land a first serve, it just did a little bit more. It cut through the court a little bit more effectively. It allowed her to set up a few more first strike opportunities. I mean, again, serves in this match were essentially drop and hit feeds. And both Kvitova and Stepanko at times were taking them like approach shots. Neither player, because they both lost six love sets, neither player's stats are going to look particularly impressive coming out of this match. 
Kvitova was a little bit better, whether it was on the breakpoints, whether it was uh, the breakpoints she faced, the breakpoints she created for herself. It's a really good win for Petra Kvitova. Uh, again, a three-set victory that for Kvitova, she's fighting to you know stay inside not just the you know top 20 of the rankings, but Petra Kvitova by making the round of 16. She's up to number 13 right now in the live rankings. Do you consider Petra Kvitova the 13th best player in the world right now? I don't know that I do. And like that's that's a little surprising to me. And you look for Petra Kvitova, 31 and 16 over her last 52 weeks. She does have the Cincinnati final. She has an Eastbourne title, now a Miami quarterfinal, an Indian Wells round of 16. A round of 16 at the US Open, I suppose as well. That gets you to 13 in the world. 31 wins, and she's 13 in the world in the live rankings? I don't know what I'm missing. And I mean, let's be clear, the gap between uh, Kvitova at 13 and Pliskova at 17 is fewer than 200 points. It's, what, 127 points? That's nothing. I can't believe Kvitova is 13th in the world. That's surprising. I mean, again, she's still capable of playing elite power tennis, and I suppose that's a testament to her serve, her weapons, the necessity of having weapons, because even when the physicality wears off, when you have the ability to play first strike, play on your terms, you're going to have success regardless. Sticking with a theme here, but wow, that's surprising to me. Kvitova, again, through to the third round. We're up next. She's going to take on Jessica Pagula uh, for what it's worth. Kvitova 3-1 in the career head-to-head against Pagula. Pagula, fantastic. That was your match of the day on the women's side. Three-set victory over Anastasia Potapova. I mean, Potapova is a remarkable athlete. And, you know, Potapova quietly, again, former top junior in the world, 21 years old. She's at a new career high, number 26 right now in the live rankings. You look for Potapova. She's 42-24. and 42-24. and 24. Over her last 52 weeks of play, you look for her metrically. She's fourth in break percentage, breaking serve 45.5% of the time over her last 52 weeks. I mean, athletically, she's on another level. Just talk about springy, fluid. You know, again, I don't think she quite has the Kostyuk and Durescu power, but she has their springiness. Like, she has that quick twitch. You know, it's, it's again, she's a little longer. And sometimes those backswings are a little bit longer as well. And I thought Jessica Pakula did an excellent job, particularly in the third set. She abandoned hitting the Potapova backhand. Everything was through that Potapova forehand when she was trying to be aggressive because that Potapova forehand backswing is a little bit bigger. It's not too big, but it is a little bit bigger. Um, And her backhand, God, her ability to drive through that backhand, her ability to play first strike. I mean, she was feasting on Jessica Pagula's second serve throughout the course of the first set. And honestly, throughout the course of the match, you look for Pagula, who ultimately, again, does grind out a 3-6-6-4-7-5 victory. Pagula managing to win. Well, that's interesting. I mean, again, she won 57% of her points on serve, 57% of her first serve points, 61% of her second serve points. That's interesting to me because, again, that's not what I saw. I saw an Anastasia Potapova. Well, I guess that is what I saw because Potapova was so aggressive on the return of serve regardless of whether it was a first or a second. And perhaps mentally she reined things in on the first serve just because inherently it is a first serve and you expect it to come at you at a little bit quicker. Meanwhile, second serve, she was just going for the swing I mean, again, in the first set, Potapova was just clubbing backhand returns. She had Jessica Pagula 
fully on the stretch and to the point where Pagula was gesturing to her sideline box as if to say, what can I do to get this player off her front foot? I mean, again, what was also amazing is Pagula goes up an early break in the second set. Potapova gets it right back. Pagula goes up another break, 4-3 in the second set. Potapova gets it right back. Now, from there, Pagula was able to create some separation. You know, again, credit to Jessica Pagula, who got so much more aggressive with her first strike, started playing her first forehand cross-court, attacking the Potapova on the run forehand. And, you know, again, Potapova threw up some great bump lobs, extended rallies, and yet Pagula really is a complete player in the sense of her ability to hit the approach shot, hit the overhead out of the air, play the first volley from a high position, you know, above her shoulder and hit that volley in an advantageous position. I mean, this is just a testament, again, to the physicality of Jessica Pagula, to the diversity of her skill set, the totality of things she can do on court because she needed to do all of the things. You know, Potapova can hurt you in so many different ways as well. And you can't play tentatively against Potapova because then she has a little bit more time to get into her forehand backswing and explode through that ball, which has a little bit more action on it than you expect. Again, the backhand's more line drive, but oh, can she drive that ball beautifully? Potapova's going to be in the mix. She can do a lot of different things well. There's no doubt about that. And yet again, Pagula's just the better version of that. And I think when Anastasia Potapova watches Jessica Pagula play the volleying, how willing Pagula has become as a volleyer to become a volleyer, that piece is missing from Potapova, who still isn't the most comfortable finishing points when she's not at the baseline or not doing it with a ground stroke. And yet again, you can see the underlying talent for Potapova, why she's gotten where she has, 42-24 and overall. And yet again, when you look for Jessica Pagula, still hasn't lost before a quarterfinal since the City Open last year. Another round of 16 for her at a 1,000-level event. Now it's going to be a fun matchup between her and Kvitova. But uh, certainly, again, impressive for Pagula to survive another physical three-set thriller. Uh, You look at the other three-setters on the day. Barbara Krachikova knocks off Wang Xinyu, uh, 6'2", 6'7", 6'2". I've, I've talked about the 21-year-old righty from China before. She's a good athlete, moves the ball well. Again, can do a bunch of different things. That was just a well-balanced ba- uh, battle. She was willing to match Krachikova's first strike. She w- was preventing Krachikova from taking the ball early on the rise by doing that herself, trying to beat Krachikova to the spot, mixing in some slice and some short angles, just... Not playing down the center tennis because when you do that, you give Krachikova time and angles to work with. She's just going to crush you. But again, Krachikova is in top form right now. That was just a, that was a top 50 level match. That match going three sets had more to do with Wang Xinyu than it had to do with any dip from Barbara Krachikova throughout the course of the match. Good three set win uh, for the 16th seed. And, you know, then Rebecca Patterson, 3 6 6 3 6 1 over Jill Teichman. I mean, what a run. Patterson, excuse me, Rebecca Peterson. You look for Peterson uh, now back up to number 75, up 28 spots as a result of reaching this Indian Wells round of 16. Not too shabby for the 27-year-old from Sweden. Your other result of the day on the women's side, Coco Goff, 6-4, over Linda Neskova. Happy birthday to Goff. Turns 19 today. Westoff, can we get a happy birthday sound effect for Coco Goff? Happy 
I mean, that's remarkable, by the way. She turns 19 years old today. And just to quickly recap what Coco Goff has done thus far in her career up to age 19, uh, overall Coco Goff, 130 and 68. So she has won two-thirds of her matches for her career, still has one more year left of being a teenager. You look for her tour-level matches, she's 117 and 58. That's crazy. Only... 23 of her matches have come on – in. It, oh, she only played 23 ITF matches before, again, things were rolling for her on the WTA Tour. Of course, she's already number six in the world but has a career high of number four in the WTA singles rankings, has been a top five doubles player in the world as well. You look for Coco Goff in her career. She's made four different finals at the tour level, obviously most notably of them, the Roland Garros final. She's won three different titles in her career. She's done it on hard courts. She's done it on clay courts. Of course, you look for her at the slams in her career. She's made the second week at Wimbledon the Australian Open, Roland Garros, and the U.S. Open. All of these things accomplished, and she just turned 19 years old. Happy freaking birthday to you, Coco Goff. Again, that's that's generational talent. I mean, you win two-thirds of your matches at the tour level for your career as a teenager. Again, I've done the metrics, folks. There's the, 80, there's the 90% club, Monica Seles, the GOAT of all teenagers you'll ever find. Then you have Martina Hingis, who I believe had five slams as a teenager. That's the next GOAT, or that's the next tier, but still the gold standard because that's ridiculous. Serena and Sharapova were in the we win above 70% of our matches. And honestly, I would put Iga in this club now as well of we're going to win over 70% of our tour-level matches. A couple slam finals, maybe a slam title in the mix as well. Be up there in the world number one conversation. Do all this as a teenager again. That's the... Silver standard, I suppose, because what Celis and Hing- Celis is world class. Like that's a joke. Celis is the joke standard. Hingis is the gold standard. Sharapova, Serena, probably not in that order. Serena, Sharapova, Iga is ridiculous. Is still in the goat conversation standard. And then you have the next tier, which is like Enin, Kleisters, Coco. Where you're winning like two-thirds of your matches as a teenager, making a slam final, making a bunch of quarterfinals in the year-end championships conversation. Like, I just think it's worth putting that perspective on Coco Goff, who, by the way, continues to get better at everything on court as well. You look for Coco Goff now. You know, she is one of the eight players on the WTA Tour who ranks top 25 in both hold and break percentage. She's improved her break percentage in each of her first four seasons on the WTA Tour and right now is breaking a career high 40% of the time through her 2023 start. She's also holding a career high 81.9% of the time. Now again, will that hold up throughout the course of the season if she's in the over 80% club? That's Serena Osaka. That's it for a full season I've ever seen. Now, again, Garcia's hanging out in that club right now as well, but that's elite of the elite. And, you know, she's been broken once so far at this Indian Wells. She wasn't broken against Nascova, won 88.6% of her first serve points. It's her willingness to move forward. That's the new piece for Coco Goff this year. And yes, she's gotten that much quicker as well, gotten that much stronger. And that's what happens when you go from being a teenage sensation to now a 19-year-old inching closer and closer to, again, the prime of your career, Coco continues to improve physically, which is nuts because she's never been at a physical deficit since the moment she walked on tour. 
The fluidity in the corners is insane. You know, again, she took away the first strike so frequently from Naskova with her speed. But it's her willingness to move forward behind her own serve. It's her willingness to put Naskova... You know, she forced Naskova into the outer thirds. And while Naskova has weapons, she needs time to get into those weapons. I don't think Naskova... I mean, Naskova's 18 years old. She's got plenty of time to become a better mover. I'm not worried about it. You see the underlying anticipation skills. I think she's got a good first step as well, but she's not the most fluid mover. And Goff made her pay for it by taking every opportunity to move forward to the net. Goff, obviously top five doubles player in the world, as good a volley as you're going to find and comfortable hitting the overhead out of the air. And, you know, again, just put, took the first strike away from Naskova, made Naskova play on her back foot and did that with her speed did that with her ability to get outside of the ball, create angles. She very rarely hit more than three balls in the same direction against Nuskova. In fact, I don't know if she did it more frequently than two shots consecutively. Goff was, Goff's looked excellent in wins over Bukska and Nuskova. And look, she should beat Rebecca Peterson in the round of 16. She should get to the Indian Wells quarterfinals. She's a six seed. And like, again, she's looked as good as any player in the draw, not named Iga. And you look for Goff now, another straight set victory again, 78.3% favorite down to advance to the quarterfinals. That feels low. Uh, personally to me, I think she's going to win pretty comfortably against Peterson as well, because if you don't have an elite weapon to hurt that Coco Goff forehand with, and even now, you know, again, yeah, Nuskova had some success serving to the Goff forehand. There were a few short balls that, of course, Nuskova was able to capitalize on. But on this slow, high-bouncing surface, when she has a little bit more time to get under that ball and create depth and action on her forehand, ugh, it's a good surface for Indian Wells. I know it's her first time making the round of 16, Coco Goff at Indian Wells. I'm going to say she wins this event, the over-unders, two and a half times in her career in singles. And I don't know. It just depends because Iga's so good on this surface. That's the problem. Like, again... I'm not going to rehash the conversation. Iga might just be I like some scholars are arguing Iga's just the the stare. Uh, I don't want to use that term because Iga. I'm no way want to insinuate that. So let me try that again. Iga is the is just like the ultimate version, the final form of Coco Golf, the best version of Coco. That's probably the best way of saying it. Is the best version of Coco Golf looks kind of similar to what we see with Iga Sviantek. And look, Coco's two years away from being where he is now, like if on the age curve, right? Iga's 21, Coco just turned 19, or maybe she's three years younger than Iga technically because I know Iga turns 22 this year. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's like Iga's just three years ahead. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. I think it's funny because they're both ridiculous. They're both generational talents. And so that's really fun. Obviously, Krechikova versus Sabalenka. The rematch after we got to see a three-set thriller between the two of them in the Middle East. That's going to be a really fun round three match as well. So, Sakari Pliskova, Pagula Kvitova, Krejcikova, Sabalenka, Goff, Peterson. Come on. That's a really fun round of 16 forming uh, on the women's side at Indian Wells. And the play might be underway, so I'll just do this quickly. Iga versus Andrescu here on Monday is your match of the day. I mean, Hoobie versus Tommy Paul on the men's side, which I'll talk about is really good as well. But like, yeah, Rabakina Bedosa is fun. I haven't seen enough from Bedosa to consider her on the Rabakina tier right now, just given her level, her health of late. Mukova should roll Trevisan, so I don't consider that an update. When Vondrusova beats Jabur, that has more to do about Vondrusova and less to do with a drop in form from Jabur. Radakanu Hadad Maya is fun, but like, come on. 
the best version of BB is a primetime performer. Like when BB plays her best, she's looked like a top 10 player in the world. And they played a really fun first set on clay last year. 7-6, Iga took it. And then I think she pulled away. It was either 6-1 or 6-love in the second. I don't know if Andreski is going to be able to sustain the level necessary to uh, knock off Iga tonight. I, she hasn't shown it that she has that level in her uh, for the two and a half hours it would be needed to beat Iga. But she has weapons. She has athleticism. She has creativity. She has the strength and the technique necessary to deal with the heavy topspin that Iga provides. She's not intimidated by the moment and not to say that, you know, again, just in the sense that Bianca Andreescu views herself as the main character in every story that's being told. And that's probably her biggest strength is that unequivocal confidence in herself in this sport. But man, did you watch Iga in her own one win over Claire Lou? Like, if Iga rolls, I mean, she's already the prohibitive favorite, 35.8%, according to the Tennis Abstract. Next closest is Sabalenka at 13. But like, yeah, let's let's roll the balls out. Let's enjoy that one. It's going to be a fun day six on the women's side of things. With all that said, I spent a little longer on the soccer discussion than I would have liked. I apologize for that. So I'll go a little bit quicker through the men's action because... You know, we had two upsets on the day, technically. I don't think either of them were title contenders. And obviously where you start is with Christian Green. Green, a 4-6 victory over Kasparud. It was a great day on serve for Christian Green. He won 80% of his first serve points, saved three of the four break points that he faced. I mean, he was just hitting his first forehand with such confidence. And look, on the slow, high-bouncing, gritty surface, obviously... A guy like Christian Green, who has had the majority of his success at the ATP level come on clay courts, he's going to thrive on a surface like this. He has that much more time to hit his forehand. And when that forehand's at shoulder level for him, his ability to drive through that ball, hit down on it, have that ball curve away from the Kasparud forehand, uh, backhand when he when Green is hitting that forehand inside out from the ad side, it was a matchup nightmare because he got Rude so, stretched so far wide on that ad side that... The inside-in combination opened up for him. Inside-out, inside-out, inside-in forehand. Green was everywhere. Covered the net extraordinarily well. Again, found the massive serves out wide when he needed them. I thought he drove through his backhand pretty well and did a great job of capitalizing on that Kasparud backhand topspin to, you know, again, take that ball at shoulder height, drive through it a little bit easier to create better depth. It was just really difficult for Kasparud to break Garin's rhythm on serve. And that's because, again, you could tell Garin was very, very clearly, um, very clearly, I would just, tentative. Like, he, he, yes, he was swinging through his first forehand a little bit more aggressively behind his first serve as a first strike, but a lot of chip returns, a lot of bump returns with depth that just gave Garin the ability to dictate the flow of every point. And again, target that backhand so early in the rally it, it was just again Kasparud struggled this year there are no ifs ands or buts about it you look for Kasparud now overall here in 2023 four and five to start his season it's who the losses have been to you know Laszlo Jura Jensen Brooksby in, in four sets the way that match unfolded in Australia Taro Daniel in Acapulco Green now in straight sets here at Indian Wells I mean, again, he played like 
he he spoke openly about how he felt he didn't have the preseason he was hoping for with all the traveling and all the ex- exhibition matches that he played. You see that lack of rhythm manifested in his results. The gap between players now, the margins are too thin. And anything short of full confidence, you're going to see a dip in results. We've seen that for Kasparud. Now, again, credit to Christian Green, uh, who is back up to number 80 now, came through qualifying up 17 spots with his results here this week. You look for uh, Christian Green now 26-23 and 23 overall in his last 52 weeks. It's his first victory over a top 10 player since he beat Daniil Medvedev in Madrid back in 2021. Now 3-14 against the top 10 in his career, 10-27 and 27 against the top 20 in his career. It was his first top 20 win since went over Fritz in Houston last season. Yeah, I needed it. I mean, again, you make a Masters round of 16, uh, that's going to do the job for any player. And you look for him now in his career. It is his sixth Masters round of 16, third on hard courts. Interesting. He's done three on clay, and then he's done it here at Indian Wells, which makes sense. He's also done it in Paris and Canada. Huh. All right, Christian Green. And I'm pretty sure he's made a Wimbledon round of 16 as well. Yeah, two Wimbledon round of 16s. Wimbledon quarterfinalist last year, Christian Green. Who says he's a clay court specialist? Not us. Not here at Crack Rackets. We know better. I think more than anything else, he's just extraordinarily streaky and uh, clearly has found some rhythm here on this Indian Wells surface this week. So credit to Green for delivering the upset. Uh, again, I just think the book is a little bit out. On Casper, people know what to expect, how he's going to attack them, the pattern he's looking to hit. He also wants to dictate inside out forehand, inside out forehand to open up the inside in or the down the line backhand. Uh, obviously, comfortable with the volleys as well. Uh, comfortable hitting the volley moving forward as well. Again, Green took that away from him by taking his return of serve early. Every time Kasparud went to the kick serve, Green, instead of falling back, was you know on top of that baseline, taking that backhand early on the rise or sitting all the way back but then allowing himself a really clean look at a forehand. Green played really well. Rude did not. Straight set win for Christian Green. Now five victories here or maybe six victories to get to this fourth round at Indian Wells. Yeah, three in qualifying and now again three here in the main draw as well. Back into uh, the top 85 is Christian Green sitting at number 80 in the live rankings with his result. That was your... Biggest upset of the day. The only other formal upset, 23rd seeded Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, 631-664 over Hachinov. I mean, this is Foki in a nutshell, right? He, when he plays good, he's now 26-25 and 25 over his last 52 weeks. He's beaten Wu Bing and Hachinov here at Indian Wells. I mean, talk about stepping up your game. And like... For what it's worth, you look for Davidovich Fokina here in 2023, 9-6 overall, but who are the losses? Loses to RBA quarterfinals in his first event of the year. No shame in that loss. Tommy Paul, five sets, Australian Open second round. Tough one in retrospect because you feel like Davidovich Fokina maybe goes up to the semifinals the way Tommy did, but certainly not a bad loss. Loses to Medvedev in Rotterdam, three sets. That was obviously from after losing that first set was the beginning of Medvedev's run. Not a bad loss. 4-6 and six, Doha quarterfinals to Felix. Not a bad loss. 1-6, six, 7-6, seven, 7-6 six, seven, six to Rublev. He had match points in the second. Bad loss in the sense that he had mad lo- uh, that he had match points. But again, RBA, Tommy, Medvedev, Felix, Rublev. 
And yes, I excluded a loss to Quinton Halise, 3-3 three and three in Montpellier. That one's not the best. It's a good start, though, to Alejandro Davidovich-Fokina's season. Again, he's played everyone pretty darn close, and now he does get over the hump and get that signature victory here with a victory over the 13th-seeded Hachinov. And, you know, again... For his career against top 20 opponents now, you look for Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, 1-3 over his last, uh, over the season, uh, 11-28 overall. It's his first win over a top 20 player since Wimbledon last year when he beat Hercots. Again, extraordinarily streaky. Like, we know that about Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, and yet... Some scholars are arguing there's a lot of similarities between he and Shapovalov. Again, two extraordinary athletes with quick twitch capability, and yet you never know precisely what you're going to see from them, not only in any given match, but honestly within the confines of any given point. And so, again, it's a good week here for Davidovich Fokina. You look for him now in his career at the Masters events. Interesting. He's 6-11 and against top 20 players at Masters 1000 level events. He's now into the round of 16 of a Masters event for the fifth time in his career, second time on a hardcore Davidovich Fokina with this result up to a new career high of number 26 in the live rankings. 26-25 and 25 gets you to 26 in the live rankings? I guess it does when you make a Monte Carlo quarterfinal as he did last year or did he make the quarterfinals of Monte Carlo did he make the finals of Monte Carlo yeah he made the finals of Monte Carlo last year okay I guess he has a Masters 1000 final on uh, final on his resume in Indian Wells round of 16 as well uh, obviously he got that win over Hercots last year at Wimbledon but the round of 16 at the U.S. Open okay you know what Makes more sense now, looking at the context for Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. Still, that match got chippy as well. Like, that's what Davidovich Fokina does because no two points are the same. You're never going to have rhythm against him. The moment you think you've lulled him down, he's going to slap two forehands by you and, you know, get fired up and in your face. I don't know what is up. Like, let me ask you this mini break listeners if you've made it to minute number 49 of this meandering podcast i appreciate all of you because again i know i'm better than this um nevertheless it's many thoughts here it was a really interesting day five um if i ask you right now higher upside davidovich fokina or demon hour i'm i'm sad i'm bearing this in minute number 50 now because i think this is a fair question who has higher upside didn't, wouldn't you take – because they're both equally springy athletes. David, uh, Damon Hour might be a little bit more fluid of a mover, but obviously Davidovich Fokina's movement and the action on his ball more effective across surfaces. Who has the higher upside, Davidovich Fokina or Demon Hour? I think it's a legitimate question to ask, and so I'm asking it. To all of you mini-break listeners, let us know at Cracked Rackets, at A.L. Gruskin. Uh, again, looking at the other results on the day, because I know that's only two of them. Uh, you know, Francis Tiafo, the only thing that has looked better than his game are the outfits he's rocking on courts. God, was his fit against Kubler last night. That, I only wish I could be good enough at tennis and have that on-court swagger the way Francis Tiafo does, because when you... When you can make the impossible happen, like the inside-out backhand drop volley he hit on set point of the first set to clinch the set, like that's a joke. I mean, again, when you can rock at a 135-mile-per-hour serve at will, when you can track down any ball at the court on any given moment, when you can do the things Francis Tiafo does, you get to dress the way he dresses as well. Again, it's just 
It's impressive, man. Like he, he's playing really good tennis. Kubler couldn't hurt him at all. Every you know, he found a forehand whenever he wanted it. It's a good fit as well. Shout out to Nike. Shout out to Francis. I really do think he's going to be the last American standing. I feel more and more confident in that take with every passing day. There's a clear-cut pathway for him to the semifinals of this event, as now he's going to take on Alejandro Tabilo, the big servant lefty Chilean, uh, three and six over Jordan Thompson. That's huge for the qualifier Tabilo, who now, with his result, back up 25 spots in the rankings to number 162. Just gets him back in the challenger ball game, gets him back into the eight, you know, guarantees with clay courts coming up, which is where he's traditionally had his most success. You're going to get into qualifying of the French Open, and I would shock me if we don't see Tabilo come through qualifying, get into the main draw with the weapons he possesses, although he can be a little bit streaky, so I maybe shouldn't say it would shock me. I'll defer to Damian Kust there, um, but that's a really good run for Tabilo, who, by the way, now into a Masters round of 16, I believe, for the first time in his career. Credit to the 25-year-old uh, from Chile, again, coming through qualifying wins over Okana and Svida. Now he's gotten wins over Martyr, Cressy, and Thompson will take on Tiafo in the round of 16. Other bottom half of the draw results, uh, four seeds advancing, and again, a couple of really fun matchups on paper. Hopefully we see that manifest itself on the court. Cam Norrie was, you know, it was reported he got ill after his second set. Uh, ultimately, though, able to grind through 6-7-7-5-6-2. He knocks out Taro Daniel. I mean, or is the 2021 winner of this event? And again, winning ugly. Cam Norrie can do that because he can hurt you in so many different ways on a point-by-point basis. Sometimes it's taking the backhand early cross-court. Sometimes it's looping you over forehand, forehand cross, you know, forehand cross after forehand cross to open up space to attack with the forehand down the line. Sometimes it's slice serve out wide on the ad side, backed with a serve and volley, backhand volley to the open court. Like, Norrie can do a little bit of everything. Again, even on days when he's ill on court, he's a physical nightmare. I like, you know, again, the angles he creates on this court, the lanes to attack. Uh, obviously, Daniel didn't have a weapon to overwhelm him with, so this match turned into a track meet, and I'll always take Cam Nori when it comes to track meet tennis uh, if he's facing a guy who doesn't have an elite weapon or isn't a top 20 player. And again, Nori 56-22 and 22 now over his last 52 weeks against players ranked outside the top 50. He's 36-6. and six. Yeah. That's uh, that's and two of his losses were to top fifty players in Lachetka and Chorich and Gasquet. So thirty six and three against players who aren't currently ranked inside the top uh, fifty against players ranked outside the top 20, 50, and fourteen overall. Yeah, that's pretty darn good as well. Again, Cam Nori into the round of sixteen once again at Indian Wells, where he's going to face an inform Andre Rublev and. You know, again, it's so different because Rublev's weapons are so pronounced in his first, you know, his, not his first forehand, every forehand he hits with his feet set. And yet, you know, you could make very similar arguments about where Andre Rublev is in his career to where Maria Sakkari is in her career. You know, Rublev's been a tour, uh, year-end tour finals sort of guy, 2020, 2021, 2022. And yet he, you know, he's made countless quarterfinals at Masters 1000 level events at you know, making second weeks pretty consistently at slams as well. And yet he doesn't have that signature semifinal. He's a little bit closer to having a signature title run as I think he's won a couple of 500s. But, you know, again, Rublev looked excellent 
and a victory over Ugo and Bear. Went down an early break and down three love in the first set. He rips off, what, uh, 13 of the next two plus three is five. 13 of the next 18 games to earn a 7-5-6-3 victory over Umbear. And his forehand just overwhelmed the Umbear backhand. You could tell the the heaviness of the ball, the depth on it. Umbear didn't know what to do. He tried taking it early. That stopped working. He tried stepping a few feet back. That wasn't working. He tried slicing it. That definitely doesn't work because now you offer Rublev time to hit another forehand at you. Umber needed to land the first serve to the backhand. When he didn't do that, Andre Rublev was able to capitalize. I thought Rublev hit his backhand down the line extraordinarily well in this match to keep Umber honest. Obviously, was plenty comfortable taking his forehand early on the rise as well, attacking that big backswing of Umber. He just got Umber on his back foot. And, you know, again, that's not where Ugo Umber has ever wanted to be. Credit to Rublev. I thought he played really good ball. I think he's playing better than Cam Nori right now. Um, you know, again, I just his weapon on this surface. This is going to be a really interesting match between Rublev and Norin for what it's worth. Rublev 2-1 and one overall in the career head-to-head. The last time these two players played, of course, Indian Wells round of 16, where Rublev gave Norin the business 4-4-4. Four, four, and four. Again, revenge will be on Nori's mind. That's going to be a really fun fourth-round match. All these matches, Davidovich, Fokina, Garin for its funkiness, Tiafo Tabilo, you're going to see some good shot-making. Rublev, Nori... No questions asked. And then, I mean, obviously the highlight real match, if they were both healthy and at their best, Medvedev versus Virev in the round of 16 would not be a matchup you'd be seeing. That's typically a semifinal or a final at a 1,000-level event. And look, these guys have played 12 times, now 6-6 six and six in the career head-to-head. Obviously, Zverev owned Medvedev early, Medvedev flipping the script of late. But, you know, Zverev did get Medvedev the last time they played in the finals of the ATP Tour Finals back in 2021. Look, both guys earned three sets victories on Sunday. Medvedev complaining, obviously, about the court speed, how slow they were, saying it's listed as a hard court. It's not a hard court. You know, he came out of the gates racing, immediately broke Ilya Vashka, you know, manages to take a 6-2 first set. Was dis- You know, Ivashka's forehand was spraying all over the place, and credit to Medvedev, who was taking his forehand early on the rise, was redirecting backhands down the line at that Ilya Ivashka forehand. Ivashka was spraying until he wasn't. And look, the pathway was clear. If you're going to beat Daniil Medvedev on this surface, you got to step inside the baseline. You got to move forward. You got to take advantage of his court positioning. You have to be willing to be the aggressor. And for a set, Ilya Vashko was able to do all of those things. I thought he volleyed extraordinarily well. I thought he, you know, again, took his forehand earlier. And clearly, they set a graphic where he was like six feet further inside the baseline. Not six feet, but it was like three and a half feet further inside the baseline in set number two than he was in set number one. And yet again, then Medvedev comes out. And, you know, Medvedev, by the way, was up a set and a break. He went up 6-2, one love before Ivashka and was down. I think Ivashka was down one love, 30 love, a break in 30 love in that second set before he comes roaring back. And then Medvedev did his thing in the third set. And, you know, again, because underlyingly, you still got to match that physicality. You got to be able to sustain it for two and a half hours if you want to knock Medvedev off. And unfortunately, Ivashka kind of lost his calibration on the forehand there. So three set win for Medvedev. That's what win number 16 consecutively now. Uh, absolutely ridiculous. Another round of 16 for Medvedev at a 1000 level event. And now again, match number 13 coming up against Alex Zverev. Zverev 7-5-1-6-7-5 over Rusevori. Four all, third set. 
I mean, there's going to be four different breakpoint opportunities where Rus have already made unforced errors. Not like Zverev hit an incredible serve and there was nothing Rus have already could do about it. No, four consecutive unforced errors, backhands in the net on two of them, a middle third forehand missed on a third, and then just a missed return. He had a clean look on on the fourth as well. And, you know, again, credit to Zverev. Gets a little bit quicker in every match that I see him. Obviously, these slow, gritty courts are going to be very helpful for him right now in particular. I mean, when he's landing the first serve, it remains explosive. He's driving the backhand better. He's moving to the forehand better, although I do think that ball is still sitting up to be attacked. And Rusevori had plenty of opportunities to do so, just got a little bit tentative. He also, there was one break point I should have mentioned where Rusevori had a backhand volley that Zverev made tough by dipping a passing shot low. It was a really tough volley that Rusevori just hung. And again, credit to Zverev's improved movement. He was able to track that ball down, hit a backhand down the line winner to get the crowd going. You know, then Rusevori played a tentative game at 5-6. Zverev capitalized, you know, connected on a couple of backhands. But it was, I mean, again, not to be disrespectful because listeners of the mini break. Not that he's going to ever listen to it, but you all know my thoughts on Emil Rusevori and what I think he's capable of. He blinked. He, he, he did. He gave, he, again, credit to Zverev who was in grinder mode and just, again, seven feet behind the baseline, buying himself time to try to drive through everything. But the ball was on Rusevori's racket and unfortunately just wasn't able to produce the tennis needed to get through. So Zverev survives. You could see how much that meant to him to get through that one physically. And again, I thought, at least on the first serve you look for, Zverev ultimately was able to win 66% of those first serve points, fought off nine of the 13 break points that he faced. Again, you could tell physically he's getting better. He's feeling more comfortable in the outer thirds. And we've just seen so many players of late, obviously team, the most pronounced, struggle to come back from a sustained period off-court due to injury. And Zverev was out for pretty much all of the end of last season, right after injuring his ankle at the French Open. It's how immediately you have seen the jumps in his game that if you are still a Zverev fan, I guess, um, you know, again, that's what you're most encouraged about it. If you're in the Zverev camp, you are certainly feeling like, okay, we're starting to see some progress. And obviously now you get the test of tests in terms of where are you physically in taking on Daniil Medvedev. But that's where things stand. Again, bottom half of the men's singles draw round of 16 set. Medvedev versus Virev, Rublev versus Nori. Those are two popcorn matches. I'm telling you, Tiafo Tabilo is going to provide some highlights. And then Davidic Vokina versus Garin is just going to get chippy. So keep your eye on all of it. Of course, we will be back tomorrow to recap it all as well. I will have a guest with me on the show, I promise, to set the scene as we look towards the second half of this Indian Wells 1000 level event. Of course, little Crack Rackets news, just an update for all of you what's going on here over the next week. I am so excited to head to what promises to be a jam-packed and action-filled challenger. in Phoenix over the course of the next week. I'm excited to be down there to have the opportunity to, I believe, MC the event, be the on-site media, interview so many of the players, and I think they're all top 100. I know Matteo Berrettini took a late wild card into the event. So many of the top players who were knocked out early at Indian Wells, they're all getting extra matches in in Phoenix, and we're going to be on the ground to cover it also. Be on the lookout for a ton of content related to Phoenix, both here on the Mini Break podcast, but all interviews will be over on our Cracked Interviews podcast 
podcast feed as well as on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff on the ones and twos makes all of this content possible with the of an editing job he does day in, day out. Of course, a shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. With all of that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.